0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast. And now, here's your host, Casey Cover. Let's get started.
1: Hey, welcome, everybody. It's Casey Cover, your host on Training with Casey. Uh, Joseph, thank you for the introduction, and nice to have you here today.
0: You're welcome, Casey.
1: And thanks for all the great work you do helping us put this podcast out. So today, um, I would really like to talk about mental mapping. Have you heard that term before?
0: Not until you mentioned it.
1: (laughs) Okay. So I don't know where I heard it the first time, but it's really important. To cognitive training. So I even made us a set of notes so that you can see what we're going to talk about. And reminder, everyone have notes. There you go. And I I always take notes when I listen to podcasts because it kind of helps me stay focused and to think. So I'm very notes oriented. All all right. Right. What's so, wrong with
0: you people? Why are you not taking notes?
1: <laughs> you don't Stop even know. Stop this podcast
0: is. recording. Go they're take pro- notes. Listen they're probably to Casey. all
1: taking notes, especially if they're European. <laughs> European people don't miss a thing. Okay. So. Okay. We should men- test that mental- out one day. Mental mapping compared to rote or automatic compliance. So I want to keep the animal thinking and engaged. I never want the animal to automatically do something without thinking about if it's appropriate for that set of circumstances. So some examples of uh, the difference, if I tell an animal to sit, but, it's an unhealthy environment, I don't want him to automatically sit. Or more to the point, if I taught him to sit automatically because we're healing and I come to a stop, I actually don't want him to sit if it's a dangerous situation. Like we're in contaminated water or someplace where you know there's toxins around. And I've had problems with this in the past where somebody taught an animal to just be so automatic in his behavior that either it put the animal in danger or put somebody else in danger, or it totally ruined other possible behaviors. I had a Doberman who thought that a good dog would always sit. It used to be automatic where people used to teach dogs In obedience class, to sit automatically every time the owner stopped. Well, that's great in an obedience ring, but only a small part of life is lived in an obedience ring. And I wanted my dog to do a series of five cycles of a complicated behavior. It was going to look so cool. It was called the Big Black Wave. But to do this, he had to go through a sequence of behaviors stand bow down sit stand bow down sit and he had to be very uh synchronized you know very on the beat with the behavior and very quick to do it and to take the cue and he had to do it at least four or five times in a row for it to really look the way i wanted it to look and the problem was he would do it. He would do it twice. If I bridged him at all, if I even gave him an eyebrow nod, like, Yes, that's it. You're so good. He would immediately sit because he was now a good dog and a good dog would sit. And we could never get that behavior past that certain point. And then after that, I didn't have any big black dogs for quite a while. So I haven't done it again. I'd like to do it. So how do you get the behavior you want, but without the animal having rigid, automatic, non-thinking compliance?
0: I was about to ask you that.
1: <laughs> and in my opinion, we get it with mental mapping. So in mental mapping, we teach one idea and then we teach a second idea, almost always a contrasting or opposite idea. We teach it like, let's say we're doing left versus right. Okay, can you show me left? Good. Can you show me right? Good. Then we'll change the position. Can you show me left? The animal does it. Good. We're now on to the next thing. That's all we do it.
0: Okay, while we are on this, has there ever been any times when the animal has offered a different side or has offered to give you the side that you asked for? And what did you do in both situations?
1: Okay, good question. So. When he gives me the correct side, I say X or good. And then I will confirm, I'll generally confirm his choice. That's your right ear. Good job. So X, right ear, good. If he gives me, if I ask him for the right ear and he gives me the left ear, very, very rarely do I say no or incorrect. I normally say If I ask for the right ear and he gives you the left ear, I'll say, that's your left ear. Can I have your right ear? Because let's be honest, if the animal doesn't want to do this, he'll probably leave in the next trial or two if he doesn't want to learn this. If he does enjoy it and he just made an error, then why would I discourage him?
2: Will you give the animal the LRS? Not usually, not at this stage of the training, because
1: I can tell him what it is and just ask him again. So we're different in SATs anyway. We almost always just ask an animal rather than give them a command. Frankly speaking, you can command all you want. And you're not going to necessarily get it. So we get very, very good compliance just by asking. I remember when I did shows. And I remember when I went to see everybody else's shows. I never went to any show except the orcas, all the other animals were not ever 100% accurate and correct in compliance in their shows. And that includes mine as well. And there were a lot of things that feed into that. For example, at one place I worked, the animals would do up to 14 shows a day. You can kind of imagine why they would get tired of doing that toward the end of the day,
2: but um, no matter what we think we can
1: command in reality, if the animal goes to test us, we can't command anything with exotic animals. I mean, if we plan things carefully and so forth, we can, Uh, not be within reach of them, but we cannot make them do anything without endangering ourselves and them. And, you know, even a, a really ferocious, like a little honey badger or something like that, he's a tough animal and he's very ferocious and so on. So you might think, well, I'll just, you know, teach him a lesson or something like that. But in reality, when the animals get frustrated, violated feeling, all that kind of thing, they can die on the spot. And you certainly don't ever want to have anything like that happening. So what I learned is I can generally get well over 90% compliance just by asking the animal and teaching them in a certain way. And in that certain way, um, I want them to keep thinking about what we're doing together. And they even sometimes come up with better ideas. Anyway, I don't usually command an animal because I recognize that I cannot command them. So I don't put myself out there. So going back to mental mapping, if an animal is learning and the learning is interesting, they're usually really motivated to keep going. In fact, they'll get really excited just by the process of learning. Do you find that's true with you in school?
2: Yes. Yes, absolutely.
1: So what do you find fascinating to learn about?
0: Psychology.
1: Okay. What do you find less fascinating? What's something you have to do, but you don't enjoy it very much?
2: I hate math.
1: Many people do.
2: Why? Did you ever think about it? I hate thinking about math. There you go. It takes
1: mental discipline, doesn't it? And you have to learn all the stuff we're talking about with mental mapping. You have to learn what all the numbers are. You have to learn what all the operations are. You have to learn all the syntax, you know, like in algebra, how you use parentheses and so on to guide you through solving an equation. It takes a lot of discipline. And it's not so naturally just fascinating. Probably largely because there's so much work you have to do up front to get to the good stuff. If the first thing you learned in math is how to calculate your money and the faster you could calculate it, the faster your money would grow, I'll bet you you'd love math.
2: But in our lives, the rewards of math are kind of further apart but what else makes it so that you love psychology more which one can you obviously see
1: how it would be useful to you
2: reading behavior
1: yeah yeah psychology is going to empower you for something you really are interested in and love to do. Whereas math, eh, we'll see you later. So it, it's similar for the animals. If you present stuff that they feel is relevant and um, they can, you know, learn from and use right away, generally they are right with you. And when I teach, for example, horses at the stable, I show frequently where I'm teaching like Sarah and Fedora is at the crack in the door watching everything that's happening. Or other horses as I go by will reach out and nuzzle me and kind of like, I can do that. Can you try it with me too? They're interested. They're curious. So We want to keep that animal thinking, interested, and engaged. And to do that, we use mental mapping. And like I said, in mental mapping, we generally use two trials per idea, and then we'll switch the position of one of the choices, and then that's it. And then we'll add something new.
2: Excuse me. Bless you. Oh, dear. Anyway. So when you uh, do this, everything
1: gets a name, in fact, every aspect. So you name the ears, the eyes, the head, the nose, the toes, the legs, everything. But you also name the position. Is it on the left? Is it on the right? Is it front or rear, top or bottom? And even the relative position, is it proximal or distal? Do you know what those words mean already?
0: Like, is it here or there?
1: Yeah, proximal is close and
2: distal is far away. What's medial? In the middle, right? right?
1: So when you, when you learn all those terms, if you're attending to an animal, And the vet's talking, you're going to understand what he wants faster than if you don't speak the lingo. If you teach it to your animal that way, he'll understand it too. And that will often help him relax. Okay. So now we're going to start with something really simple the eyes. So you're going to show the animal, look, you've got an eye. That's your. Well, okay, your right eye. Here's another eye. This is your left eye. You have two eyes. Look at that. One, two. Can I touch your eye? Good, 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 good. I'm gonna touch your left eye. Good. I'm gonna touch your right eye. Good, 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 good. Good. Can I touch both eyes? Good, 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 good. Can I touch your eye with water? Just gonna take a little damp piece of paper towel. I'm going to touch your eye with a wet surface. Now, do you think that an animal would notice a wet surface? Yes. They often will. A horse or person will. Now, I'll tell you who might not: sea lions. When I taught sea lions to stay in the water, I thought that they would notice if they were wet or dry. In reality, they noticed whether they were swimming or standing. So I had to change the definition of being in the water. They had to be actually free swimming, free floating in the water. Because otherwise, they would keep making a mistake. If they were standing in the shallow water on the edge of the pool, they seemed to be oblivious of the boundary of the pool. That turned out to be really hard to teach. By the way, the hardest things that I find to teach are the things that happen at the interface between two perceptions. Like perceiving what it's like to be underwater and perceiving what it's like to be in the air seeing underwater, seeing in the air, swimming underwater, jumping in the air, being in a dark barn, going into a light sunny day. So that might help some day. Okay. So when you're teaching all these things, so I have here a list, your eyes, uh, whether or not they're right or left, you add touch, water, ointment, washing, covering, spray. Another one is moving something over the eye, like a halter. That's actually one of the harder things to teach. But in here, you notice it's basically just the eye and then we add a target, which is the touch. And then we keep adding some little difference, but it's all about the eye still. And the order that you present these things is often optional. And you can choose to vary it sometimes however you want to. And then sometimes there's a logic to it. But no matter which, you always want to try to vary only one thing at a time until you've worked all the way through that concept and that animal is very proficient at making accurate choices. So if you say, um, you know, can you touch my hand with your eye? And the animal comes straight like this. Good. Can you touch my hand with your left eye? Good. Can you touch my hand with your right eye? Good. You don't have to hesitate. That animal seems to clearly understand which eye is which and what the idea of touching is. When would you uh, slow down or reteach? What
2: would you look for that would show you the animal needed more support? I would say, <clears throat> I would say when they're struggling.
1: Yeah, exactly hesitation, and confusion. So in SATs, we would instantly whip out the intermediate bridge. Good, 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 good Good job, you did it. Okay, now we said it's often optional to order, but you do have to watch out. Sometimes you do have to have an order. For example, in this sequence we just did with the I, Touch is probably the first thing because it's the simplest and it's the most, uh, it's the oldest thing. The first thing we teach the animals after the bridges is the target, which is touch. So that's a good choice for the first thing to add to eye, touch. Now we've got a bunch of other things we could add to the eye. Water, ointment, washing,
2: covering and spray what do you think would be the most difficult of those i would say spraying the eye i think so and especially because
1: there's something about the unexpectedness like you're dry and then you've got a sprayed eye ah and also, a lot of times, the spray sound. The animal doesn't like the sudden sensation, and they don't like the spray sound. They and, don't like it. Yeah, exactly. That actually can make it much harder than teaching them to allow you to, first of all, use a damp paper towel to go over their eyes. And then to use a damp sponge, where you could, you know, wring it out and really get the eyes wet. So no matter what, touch is easier than any of those things. So you would teach that first, and then um, you might teach ointment before you taught water if you had an animal that needed his eye treated. If he doesn't need it treated then water is a very useful thing that is less expensive. And, you know, ointments usually have antibiotics and everything in them, so you usually don't just use them. You use them when the animal has a problem. Okay, so generally the animal makes proficient, accurate choices immediately without much repetition. And if you watch the videos where we ask Sarah questions, you ask her the question and she very matter-of-factly touches the answer. Now, this is what our choice looks like for Sarah. And it was developed because horses don't have great detail vision. And so it's difficult for a horse to come into a small point like this or like this. It's easy for them to come up, touch your fist, and then slide out to whichever choice. So you'll see Sarah come right into the middle and then slide out to her choice. And there's no hesitation. There's nothing like, oh, wait, don't tell me, don't tell me. I know I, I, I know this. Yes, it's this. No, it's not like that. You ask her, is it this or that? And she goes, it's that or it's this. So she doesn't need us to tell her again. The repetition would be wasted. Now, once you start here, you're on the road. But remember, this is a mental map, and it's going to be very much like a map of your neighborhood. If you were going to teach, you know, let's say your little brother all
2: about your neighborhood whatever it is what would you teach him first how to get back home yeah yeah
1: and that would probably take the most basic knowledge like what the streets are and how they connect right Unless your brother is too young to go out on the street, then what would be the most relevant stuff to start teaching him about?
0: Stay away from the street.
1: Well, yeah. And maybe instead of teaching him all the streets at that particular point, you would teach him about the houses. Who lived in the houses? How to knock on the door of the house if he needs help, how to knock on the door of the house if he needs to borrow something, if he wants to ask the person to come outside and play, what are other useful things
2: that you might teach him about your neighborhood? Uh, How to identify houses? Yeah.
1: What about where the animals live? Who lets their animals run loose? Whose animals might be dangerous? Uh, What a coyote is? What do you do when you see a coyote? Um, Mailbox. How to get the mail out of the mailbox. How to put the mail in. How to put the... uh, You know, the little flag up, how to operate the ring doorbell, who sells Girl Scout cookies, where the best places to hide are when you're playing hide and seek, how to know if it's safe to play in the cul-de-sac versus the street, there's lots of things, but as soon as he can go out into the rest of the neighborhood, you would wanna teach him the streets,
2: right? And what else would you teach him then? How about where would you walk on the streets? Where would you get to? Bus stops, how to get to your school, how to get to the store.
1: How to get to your friend's house. How to get to the library. And the, the more you expand, the more other things you have to teach him also. How to get out of the road when a car is coming. Something for animals that's a big deal when you start taking them out in a city. Is the sound of air brakes. Is really un pleasant to a lot of dogs, definitely. And so we literally have to teach them about air brakes because the animals can be terrified because they don't know what the sound is, maybe, or at least that's what it looks like. Because once we teach them about the sound, they calm down. So When you're talking about teaching an animal at a zoo, at first you can start with body parts. So I said here, do the single body parts head, tail, mouth, nose, forehead. Do the pairs. I actually usually start with pairs because you have opposing examples. So you can easily teach right versus left. If you have one, head, you can't teach right and left very easily with it. You can teach it much easier with a double body part. Um, then you have body parts that come in fours, like hooves and paws, or greater numbers, toes, fingers, wing feathers, waddles. Can you imagine why you might want to teach an animal to recognize? his individual wing feathers.
0: So you can check their wings.
1: Yeah, so you can check them and even trim them. So they may not do it very many places anymore, but when I first got started, lots of people trimmed one wing of a bird to make it off balance for flying. It kind of slowed them down a little bit. Okay, why might you want to teach about the individual nails of the animal, the claws. Trimming. Yeah, you gotta trim a lot of things, including goat uh, feet, pig feet, elephant feet. That's a big job right there. Okay, how about muscles? On dogs, there's three muscles. That if we teach the dogs where they are and how to relax them, it helps them incredibly to learn to manage their arousal. And those three muscles are the sartorius, which goes from the hip to the front of the knee, the pectineus, which is a flat, rectangular muscle that goes up the inside of the thigh, and the gracilis, which is a little muscle underneath that that kind of feels like a boiled egg when the dog is tense. And so by showing the animal how to relax those things and making them aware, they've learned to relax them themselves, which is huge. Now for a lot of the animals, including horses and probably antelopes, zebras, and so on, but I've never gotten a chance to test this last one out, the bladder meridian points, have you ever heard of those? Those are acupressure or acupuncture points. And some of the animals are so sensitive that you don't wanna actually massage them like this. You just start by just barely laying your fingers against them. And you will sometimes see those animals go like this. If they start going like this, take your fingers off a little bit. Let them calm down and then try it again. So um, you can look up the bladder meridians on horses. And there are some great videos out there that show you about that. And then you could try it with other animals. Let's say a capybara. Capybara is not a horse, but he's a four-legged animal that stands on all fours. And his uh, nerve system is probably very similar to a
2: horse's. Now, then you're gonna add direction and location.
1: It, like we were saying before, is it medial? Is it proximal? Is it distal? Is it on the right or the left? Uh, ventral or dorsal? What does
2: that mean? Do you know that one already? So, what's ventral? Oh. What'd you say? Ventrals bottom and then dorsals top, right? What other one do you know would be very useful? Uh, on marine mammals? Fluke, flippers. Yeah. Uh, gosh, there's
1: so many. We used to teach the beluga whales to target their melons. They would go underwater and play with the kids and they somehow knew that the kids just thought it was so funny when they move their melon all over the place. Or maybe they were just trying to, you know, investigate the kid with sonar. But anyway, they do this and the kids would just get so excited. And they, the whales easily learned to target their melon all over the place. All right. So these things may not seem so incredibly useful as they are. So I thought of one that might really drive the point home. If you had to teach a polar bear to present his back to you so that you could examine his back. Let's say he got an abrasion on his back and you might have to spray it or make sure it's healing correctly. How could you do that?
0: Tranquilize the polar bear. Knock him out <laughs> for a bit.
1: Yeah, tranquilize yourself and the polar bear, right? Well, we actually did
2: it at the National Zoo. Excuse me, one minute here. For those, <laughs> for those of you listeners, she will be
0: using some examples. She isn't using actual target pulls because I don't think she has target pulls at her house.
1: Yeah, you know what? I probably do someplace, but oh, the honest God truth is I have a gazillion of um, those little riding crops in my truck, which is getting a repair right now. So we're up to a toothbrush box
2: and a back scratcher. (laughs) And the important thing here. Anything can
0: be a target, folks.
2: Yeah, they're, they're two targets, but they're
1: easy to tell apart. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take one of these targets, doesn't matter which one, and I'm going to assign it to the left paw. Then I take the other one and assign it to the right paw. And when you start changing things around, what's the, the number one rule? Do you remember it?
2: You only change what? Only change one.
0: One at a time.
1: Yeah. So if we say, okay, can you touch your left paw? Good, 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 good. Take it away. Can you touch your right paw? Good, 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 good. Now we bring them both forward and we say, can you touch your left paw again? Good, 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 good. Now, if the animal goes for the left paw, we continue. Good, 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 good. As he touches it, and I might even go forward to meet him a little bit. If he goes to the incorrect target, I'm just going to move it away and be quiet. Then. I'll give him the chance again. Can you touch your left paw? Good, 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 good. It's that easy. But what we do next with it is, once he's learned to touch the correct paw to each target, then I start having him touch both at once. Then I start changing the positions of the targets. So once I get them stretched as far up and down as I can on both sides, then what I'm going to do is start crossing them. So at first the bear can stand there looking at me and cross his left paw over or under his right paw so that he can touch both of these target points at once with the correct Paw. But as I move them further and further apart, he has to stretch and unwind more and more to be able to touch those two target poles at once. And next thing you know, he's got his back up against the fence. And we name that. We name every part of it. We name touching the target pole, touching this is your left target pole, this is your right. That's your left paw, that's your right paw. Can you stay on the target pole? Can you stay on the target pole? As I move it, we call that follow. Can you cross your paws? Can you cross your paws and unwind? Can you turn around? That's your back, can I touch your back? Can you put your back up against the fence? Can what once we get it up against the fence? What's the next variable we'd be likely to work on?
2: Getting him to allow you to touch
0: other parts of his body.
1: Yeah. Well, or since right this minute we're, we're yes, that's a perfectly good answer. But before I leave this back thing, I want to make sure he'll keep it there for a longer duration. So that if I actually get a vet in there and he has to look at it, he has to have enough time to see it. Another one would be to be able to like touch it, spray it with a medication. Those would be some other things that I would probably want to cover right then while I was doing all that work. Uh, One real thing that happened at the National Zoo is that. The polar bears were taught to target their mouth. So the keeper's on the other side of this fence wall, but she could move her two fingers apart and the bear would touch one finger with his bottom jaw, the thumb with the bottom jaw, and his top jaw to the tip of the finger. So he's not coming through the fence or anything. This is all, you know, safe and all that as long as she doesn't put her finger through the fence. Okay, this is just on the surface of the fence like this. And uh, she saw that the polar bear seemed to have a tooth problem. So she called the vet and the vet said he happened to be in the zoo at that exact minute with a dentist. And he would come by right away and they would examine the polar bear. Well, normally that's going to take at least three veterinary staff and hours to get that done. But because this dedicated polar bear trainer had taught this thing, she was able to just call the bear over to the wall you know, the little fence, and target the mouth open. And the dentist was able to look right inside and say, okay, that's a broken tooth. We're going to have to extract it. So they did have to anesthetize the bear to do that. But normally they'd have to anesthetize the bear just to see if they had to do that. Of course, every time you anesthetize an animal, that's a lot of expense, but most of all, a
2: lot of risk. So, in conclusion,
1: when you teach ideas, but keep relating them together, it makes the learning very relevant to the animal. They see why each one of these things can be important to them. And the relationship of all the things helps them to remember Just like when you come out of your house and you're teaching your little brother about who all is there, he's going to remember his next door neighbors more easily than he does the people down the street, because those are the people that he talks to, that he plays with, that he sees every day. And by showing the animals how these relationships are important and by naming everything, they learn so quickly. And so richly, like it really helps them to also extrapolate into new situations and use that information. Now, because we name every little piece, so we name uh, the words for the actions and everything and the critical features, like, you know, is it longer or shorter or left or right or whatever then we can then refer to whatever we taught because we have a word for it. So we don't have to reteach something every time. I mean, can you imagine how many times you're gonna have an animal's mouth targeting? So if you just name, can you target your mouth on this? Can you target your mouth on this? Can you open your mouth? and it on this ball. That is so much faster than just going up and by trial and error, getting an animal to touch yet another thing
2: with his mouth. Okay. Does that seem easy? You gonna do it? Yes. Oh, I,
1: I hope you will. I'd love to see. Love to see if you do it. Take some video. Okay. Well, did you want to add anything? Not
0: that I can think of.
1: Hey, I hope people really enjoy this. It's uh it's kind of like a mix between psychology and math, isn't it? Yes. Because it's got these great payoffs for how it helps you to teach and interact with the behavior of the animal. But there's also some discipline and uh, method, technology involved. And it's so worth it to really master these things because the more you do it, the more fluent you become. All of a sudden it becomes like speaking any other language, it's easy. So you might as well rush to that point where it all gets to be easy. Because up to that point, it's like going to math class. It isn't so much fun. Hey, thank you for uh, joining me with this. It's a lot more fun to do these together. Well, thank you. Okay. Well, let's put this together and we'll put it out for everybody. And you have a great week at school. Thank you.
2: Thank you. You too. Well, have a good night, I should say. You too. Hey fans, are you enjoying
0: Training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Cover on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.